My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it really is a privilege to, to, to be able to say that. Um, even when the microphones don't work and the screens don't work either, uh, the Word of God still works, and the Spirit of God is still active, and so we can still gather this morning and make much of what He's done on our behalf, and so let's celebrate that together. Um, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning. It's a beautiful book. This has been a wonderful week for reading, and I hope and trust that you're still in the reading plan. If you've stuck it out this far and, and you're staying faithful, I want to encourage you, don't give up, because we're getting near the end, and uh, there's more to, to be won at the end than to say that you complete the, the plan, although that is a, a prize in and of itself. Um, that, but, uh, and if you are just showing up for the first time this morning, you say, hey, what are you talking about with this reading plan? Well, we, we do a reading plan, and the idea is that we'll work our way through the, through the Bible in the course of a year, and every week, whatever we've read that week, um, during the, the, the week and the weekdays, a sermon will be brought from one of those passages. And so it's been a really unique time for us as a church this year. And I want to encourage you, it's not too late to jump in. Uh, all that information, uh, what we'll be reading in the week to come, is still in our loop that you received on the way in. And if you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. Or if you just scream real loud and wave your hand right now, maybe somebody will bring you one. Um, but anyway, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. It was a wonderful reading this week. We spent time in Colossians, and we also spent time in Ephesians and read through both of them. Maybe you, you noticed that these two books really complement one another very well. Um, I want to just give you an idea of, of what the book of Ephesians is and just a little bit of, of the background. The book of Ephesians was written to encourage Christians in the, the city and area of Ephesus as they, as they walk with Christ. They would be productive, they would be unified, and that they would love one another in the midst of whatever they're going through. And at that point in time, it was persecution. So Paul writes a letter. This is, he also writes this letter from, while, uh, from prison. We looked, uh, not that long ago, we looked at the fact that, that Paul went even in, in, in prison in chains when he arrives on the scene. Um, he still does what he can to share the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully with those whom he can. And he even asks people to come to him. And now, while he's in prison, he's still writing letters to the churches who need to be encouraged, that need to receive truth. And as is common in all of Paul's writings, or at least most of them, the first half of the book is typically dedicated to theology. It's dedicated to theory, if you will. The second part is then, okay, what does this mean then to you? How can you apply it to your life? And we see that in the book of Ephesians. Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 3 are, are mostly theology. And then the rest of the book is, now what do we do with that theology? What does that actually look like as we apply it in our own lives? And Paul, with some inside information and the help of the Spirit, obviously he pens this book. Not only does it, it help the Ephesian Christians, but it also, I trust, will be an encouragement and a help to us this morning. Before we jump into our text, which will be in chapter 4, I want to just give you a little bit of an, an, a highlight, a high-level view of the first three chapters and talk about a, just a few things that took place. And over this, just for the sake of time, we, I won't read these passages, but I'll just kind of point to them. So if you can follow along, uh, do it. But if not, maybe you can, you can just listen to it on podcast. But uh, in, uh, in chapter 1, Verses 3 and, and following, uh, Paul says some things like this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking to Christians. He says, Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? Speaking to the Christians, he says, God, the Father, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He reminds the Ephesian Christians that no matter what they're going through, no matter how bad of a day they're having, how bad the week has been, if they fear they'll make it out alive, he says, hey, listen, 
you have been blessed by God the Father through Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. If you're a Christian this morning, that is you. You have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He's not withholding anything from us. He goes on to say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he's determined, he's saying, he determined to bless you in this manner, in this way, as extensively as he has before you were even born and before the world was even formed. These are beautiful truths for us this morning. You could, we could, well, you could just walk your way down through the next few verses and just maybe run around the, the, the auditorium this morning and, and swing your jacket and just jump. And if the, if the rafters were low, low enough, you might want to jump and, and swing from them as well. There are some beautiful things there that Paul is pointing them to and reminding them of. Every spiritual blessing, and you didn't even seek it out, God determined to give it to you not based on what you had done or what you would do, but based on his love for you. He goes on to say in chapter 2, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross of Christ, thereby killing the hostility. He goes on to, to flesh that out a little bit more, but the idea is this. So much division in our world, both amongst people groups, individuals, even in neighborhoods. There's division. There's racism. There's hatred. Culturally speaking, we're not a, it's, it's found here as well. And not just here, but around the world and Part of the truth in this passage is that God, through the work of Christ on the cross, has broken down that wall of partition, right? In between us. What, what separates us? What, what we hold on to in our differences that he's removed that as well, and he's given us a common denominator in Christ. But what's even more, that that wall of partition that was erected between mankind and God himself has been torn down. And that we are now able to experience the presence of God himself. It's been divided, the dividing wall has been destroyed. It's been taken away. This is the truth. What divides us amongst our, our, our neighbors and amongst the nations has been taken out of the way and made of, of, of no power. The same is true of what separates us from God himself. This is done through the work of the cross. And this is true for those who are in Christ, for, for Christians, who again, who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith received that forgiveness. This isn't all of it. There's so much more. The fact that we have been saved by grace through faith and that it's not of ourselves. And on days when, again, when we feel like we've, we've messed up royally and there's nothing for us in, in Christ, we realize that we did not receive forgiveness because of works that we had done. So much beautiful, uh, so much wonderful truth in these passages. Paul reminds us of all of these things. And the idea that Paul's trying to get us to see is that while we may have differences, we may have things in our lives that separate us from our neighbor or from our brother and sister, and we may have differences, we do have differences rather, that separate us from God the Father, in Christ Jesus we can be united. Not only with each other, but with He, he Himself. Well, just uh, put out this idea of unity. This is one of the main themes, if not the main theme of this book, unity that Paul would love to see in the church at Ephesus. 
Jesus himself had died to give this unity. Unity is not uniformity. He's not saying that in Christ we don't have different color skins or different, uh, different cultural practices, different preferences. He's not saying that that's true. Of course, we will still be different. We won't look uniform. As a people of God, even this morning as I look across this room, there's young, there's old, there's black, there's white. There's many other differences. And yet in Christ... We have this common denominator. And so Paul wants to say, hey, all of these things are true. So because Christ has done this, because of Christ has separated us and removed us from all of this stuff that actually creates division, we can experience unity both in the church and with God himself. So as we think of unity, I want to introduce this idea of division. One of the greatest causes of division in our lives that we experience is when we perceive to lack something in our lives. It creates division. Imagine what, it, what it's like, how you've treated people whenever you felt like you didn't have enough to eat. What do you do? Well, you, you, might, you might steal, and maybe you didn't have enough to eat. What if you don't have enough, you don't have more than somebody else? You perceive a lack in your life of, of stuff. Maybe you don't have a, as nice a car or a nice as a set of baseball cards as somebody else, and so even as a child, what do you do? You think, I have a lack, and so therefore I should steal. What does stealing do? Well, it creates division. What do we do when we, when, we, when we gossip, when we speak poorly about somebody? Oftentimes we're motivated as, as we, feel, uh, we feel like we have not been respected. We feel like people don't recognize or understand the, what we bring to the table. And maybe somebody else is receiving what we believe we should get. And so there's a scarcity in our lives and a fear, and it leads us to separation. Why? Because what we do, we proceed to gossip. To bring somebody else down as we elevate ourselves, there's this desperation, there's a scarcity. And it creates a division. We could go down the list, down the line. There, oftentimes we think that we're missing out on something, that there's something that we have not received and therefore we must get it, and that creates a division, ultimately ending in division in the church. If we go back to the beginning, the, the truth that we saw just in, in the first chapter, that every spiritual blessing, everything that we need has already been given to us. So there's no scarcity of love, there's no scarcity of forgiveness or resource in, in the life of a Christian Everything that we need has been supplied to us. So when we realize that truth, that everything that, we, everything that we need, everything that we desire, everything that we lack has been supplied graciously towards us, we are then freed to not be concerned with our own needs, but to be concerned of the needs of others, which is a demonstration of love, and it brings about unity. And that's kind of the, the idea this passage this morning that we're going to be looking at, right at the beginning, I'll, I'll just give you a heads up. Paul says in transition, he says, hey, listen, these things are true. Chapters 1 through 3, they're true. And because they are true, I want you to walk in a manner that's consistent with your calling. That's the, the turning point there. These things are true, and since they're true, this is what it should look like in your own life. This is what you should pursue. So with that said, with all that background, let's read the passage this morning. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Unfortunately, it's not on the screen, but you can follow along in your copy. Also, I'll try to read slowly and clearly. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is what the Word of God says. I, therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far from the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, these are your words this morning. We come to them we look for hope. We look for direction. Spirit, the words that were penned so long ago to a people far away are also for us this morning. We trust and believe that. So as we look to it, the power that was in the scriptures as the Christians at Ephesus, as they read it, the same power is even now alive and active and working in our midst this morning. And we trust that and we believe it. And so we pray that we would have the power through your spirit and your presence to put off what you'd have us to put off to put on what you'd have us to put on. Spirit, if there is somebody here this morning that is not restored in their relationship with God the Father, we pray that as a result of the word being preached, that they would see their need for a Savior, that they would trust the truths of Scripture, and that if we repent of our sins, if we turn from them, if we ask Jesus to save us, that you will. So we trust that this morning, and we pray that you would work in the lives of those that are gathered. Encourage us, draw us to yourself. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we read this sub-passage of the the entire book here, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, I want to just offer my thoughts on it. Here's what I think the scripture is saying to us. And if you don't take anything else, take this then. This is the second don't take anything else, take this. That God is glorified in the church as we work to maintain unity in love and as we attain unity in truth. Let me say that again. God is glorified in the church as we work to maintain unity in love and as we attain unity in truth. So as we walk through the passage this morning, we'll really look at these two ideas. These are the two uh, sub-points, if you will. Maintain unity in love and attain unity in truth. So unity and love and unity and truth. 
Paul says right there at the beginning, we read just a moment ago, he calls us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. The idea of, of worthy, what does it mean to walk worthy? I'm sure that you can just use your own imagination and, and understanding of the, of, the, of the English language, but it really, the word worthy brings to mind a set of scales. Now, don't, we're not going into, this is a totally unbiblical theme to think that now good works and bad works and somehow they work themselves out. No, that's not what we're going, that's not what's being said here. But Paul is calling us, he's saying, hey, walk worthy. You let your life be worthy of what you have been called to. He said, all of these things are true that we looked at in chapter 1, that we looked at in chapter 2, that are there listed in chapter 3. All of these things are true. And now because of those things, walk in a way that is consistent with that. He's saying, if you're a Christian, if you've been called by God, act like it. We could shut it down this morning. Isn't that a good word? So oftentimes we get caught up in things that are distracting us and, and dragging us to this or, can, or, or drawing our attention over here. At the end of the day, Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, if you have been saved from your sins, just act like it. Act like it. The idea that he's talking about is there in maintain unity and love. Look at that word maintain. He says maintain unity and love. To maintain means to cause to, uh, a state to continue. To, to cause a state to continue, to, to retain something, to, to keep something going. It's not that you've created something. No, it's not a capital work. It's a maintenance work. It's already begun moving. It's already happened. And he's saying, maintain unity and love. Imagine having been given a, a, a beautiful mansion free of charge. Some of you guys, I've lost you now. You'll just be daydreaming about how you would decorate it, right? But imagine that you had been given a, a mansion free of charge. Maybe it was a family member or just some uncle that you had no idea that you had, or maybe whatever it is. It's your fantasy. But you received this house free of charge at no cost to you, and you couldn't afford that house because your resources are, are, are limited to the point where you couldn't afford it, but, and yet you, you, you have it. You couldn't live in that kind of neighborhood you couldn't afford to, to, to pay the, even the fees, but all of that is taken care of. And all that is required of you is that you remain in the house, that you live there. And as you live there, in a house that you couldn't afford, in a neighborhood where you likely don't belong, with no mortgage, no fees, you still have maintenance that's due, isn't it? That's one of the fears. Most of us are like, well, we'd like to live simpler. And some of us, we haven't caught that yet because when you have a big yard, you have to have a big mower. You have to have a big weekend and you have more trash and you have more cleaning and more baseboards and all these other things. But regardless of the fact, no matter how big your house is in your fantasy, if you have a house, you have to do maintenance. And this is a little bit of an idea of what we see here. You see, we on our own have not been, uh, we've not earned the unity that we experience in the church. What this passage is saying is that that unity has already been given to us, and we are only to maintain it. So this morning, as Christians, as we gathered this morning, we didn't have to work to get that. That was a gift that was given to us. Our unity that we experience as a people of God, it was a gift to us that is afforded to us that as we are in Christ. And now we just walk worthy of the manner, the calling, what we've been called to. We maintain the unity that we have already been given. 
So practically speaking, imagine what would that look like in your life to maintain the unity that you've been given. The love that has been extended to you, that draws us together, that common denominator that we have in Christ, how do we maintain that? How do we, how do we grow in that? A lot of what we talk about this morning will, will address that issue. This house that's been given to you in a similar way, what we enjoy This unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. We don't need to work for it. We don't need to fight to obtain it. But we do fight to maintain it. So imagine what that would look like this morning in your own marriage, in this church this morning, in your neighborhoods, amongst the people of God. How do we fight? How do we obtain, or I'm sorry, maintain what has already been given to us? You see, when we act in a divisive manner, when we steal, when we lie, when we gossip, we treat somebody with disrespect. What we're doing, especially if they're of the household of faith, if they're a Christian, what we're doing is we're working against the Holy Spirit. We're working against what God has afforded to us through the person of Christ. You see, he's fought. He's bought our unity, and he's given it to us. And then when we act against that in some type of disunity manner, we're fighting against the Holy Spirit. The unity that we have as a church has been spirit-produced. It's been given to us. And it's a, it's a community, it's a unity of affection, of confidence, of love, and of harmony of views, chiefly in, uh, of, regarding those views of, of Christ and what he's done for us. So the question then would be asked, how are we to walk worthy? How, practically speaking, what does this look like as we pursue maintenance of the bond of unity, or of the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. How do we do that? Well, verse 2 gives us a little bit of a clue. It says, the word, uh, it says that we're to pursue it in humility. The, the classical Greek understanding of, of humility is actually a derogatory term. It's not something that you want said of you um, in classical writing. Now, not in the New Testament. I want to explain that. It, it, but in classical Greek, the idea that the, of the word used for humility here is, is uh, just, uh, just a groveling. A low-mindedness, a low value even. So it's not something that you would want to have said of you. And yet, in the New Testament, in the Christian faith, in the writings of the New Testament, that, that word was redeemed. And instead of not wanting to be called humble or to be said of you that you are walking in humility, but it's actually now something that's highly desirous. It's how we pursue unity. If you look at the, the person of Christ, what did he do? Well, he humbled himself. And as Christians, we walk in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. We pursue humility, thinking less of ourselves. Not thinking less of ourselves in the sense that we think we're not valuable. No, but we look to the cross and we say the cross of Christ says that we are valuable. But at the same time, we think of ourselves less and we think of others more. This is humility. We're also to have gentleness. This is how we pursue unity. This is how we maintain the unity that we've been given. We're gentle with one another. It goes on to say patience. It lists patience there. It's a characteristic of God himself. It means that you're slow and long-suffering. That you're, in a sense, even to some degree reluctant to avenge wrongdoing against yourself. This is patience. Many of you know if, you, if you've been in a relationship of any sort with any person, whether, they're, uh, whether it's platonic or not, if you are in a relationship with somebody else, that you will be hurt. 
whether it's the person across the street from you, across the desk from you, or even across the other side of the bed, and maybe there's like some type of a wall that's been built like physically in the bed. Either way, you know when you are in relationship with somebody else, you will be wronged. You will be hurt. Oftentimes the ones who are closest to us are the ones who hurt us the worst. And not accidentally even. Sometimes it's intentional. So what are we to do? Well, we're to be patient with one another. That's what God calls us to in the church, the unity that we've been given. The cross of Christ says that demonstrates the patience of God in our lives, and we're to imitate that. We're to bear with one another literally means to to hold somebody up, to hold them up, to put up with their faults, their idiosyncrasies, uh, with all the things that, that uh, that, that is them. Sometimes it's difficult to deal with. We're to bear with one another. We're called to humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. All of these are most clearly modeled for the Christian by Jesus himself on the cross. So how do we, how do we, how do we maintain unity? Well, we act like Jesus did. It's, he's already acted like that on our behalf. That dividing wall of partition, both between us and God and, and us and, 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 and mankind, has been removed. And now we walk in that. We walk in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. So if we're only to maintain the unity, where does that come from? Where does that unity come from? Where, where, how has this been afforded? Well, we've alluded to the cross of Christ, but Paul goes on to answer it for us. In verses 4 through 6, he, he, he gives us a little bit of understanding here. He expresses the spiritual realities that unite the church, and it's, it's something that transcends all the differences of our backgrounds and our preferences even. And it's the thing that guarantees the unity. Also, this is in 4 through 6. Also, as you look at 4 through 6, I just want you to notice the, the Trinitarian structure that we see here. So even many people, they disregard and, and, and throw out the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. Even here, in the first century, as Paul is writing to the church, he's referencing the person of, the, of God the Father, of God the Son, and of God the Holy Spirit. And they're all active in our redemption and our purchasing and, and uh, making available this unity that we experience. In verse 4, he says, one body, one body. We as a church, as those who are in Christ, are one body. It's a single, visible community. It's not a mystical concept. Look around this morning. There's one body. In those days, there was the Jews and the Gentiles that were so separated and so utterly against one another that they could be reconciled in Christ and they could worship the Lord together on his day. It demonstrated the one body. In the pagan world, there were many religious cults to choose from. Christians, on the other hand, they were all members of one body. And if you have one body, you must also have one spirit, as the passage says here. The spirit of God, it indwells the body of Christ. The church has been called the body of Christ. And if there's one body, there is only one spirit. And that spirit gives us life. That's a picture. The church and the spirit of God are a picture for us, or I'm sorry, our lives, rather, are a picture of that. You'll even notice it says one spirit. What would it be like to have two spirits? It wouldn't be good, right? It wouldn't be good. There's not two spirits in the church. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. A person's body is composed of many parts, but it has one whole together, and one spirit that stirs it. The church is the same way. It's composed of many individuals. 
many congregations throughout all of the ages, and, and yet there's one single whole spirit. Onward, he goes to say that there is only one hope. There's only one hope. That is the hope that accompanies the Spirit. As we're drawn to, to, to repentance and faith, we have hope of one day of glorification, those of us who are in the church. He goes on to say there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And in a society that's replete with false gods and, and countless fiends demanding your submission, Paul says there's only one Lord in the church there. They knew that. They knew that Jesus is Lord. He was the only worthy Lord in their lives. Verse 5, he says, one faith. and It's faith in that Lord that unites all true believers. It's a personal commitment to Christ, what he's referencing here, this one faith, the, the faith. It's not entirely individual either. While it is an individual aspect to it, it's also a corporate as well. Together as a church, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of men. So they have allegiance wholly to him. One Lord, one faith, and, and even one baptism. Baptism, as we celebrated this morning, it's what makes us one in a, in a way, visu- visually. If you imagine that the church is a, is a house, the ba- baptism is the front door in a sense. Visibly, tangibly speaking, it's the front door. It's, we, it's how we enter into the church. Place our faith in Jesus Christ. We receive forgiveness. And we confess that before men. And they say, we believe that as well. And we welcome you in to community. And we baptize you. That's what took place this morning. So baptism is that one way into the church. Not that baptism saves us. This is not true. But it is the door, tangibly, physically speaking, into the church. It's a symbol of the old life dying and the new life being given. It's only for those whom God has made alive. That's baptism. And there's one God. It doesn't get any more basic than that, that there's one God. This is a basic Judeo-Christian principle. One God that reigns over all, he works through all, and he dwells in all, and that his presence is pervasive. This is the, the truths. This is the, the, the framework of the unity that the church experiences. The basis for our unity as a church. And, and then here Paul begins to, to make a shift from addressing the unity that we have collectively. And he turns to talk about the individuals that make up the church. And there is a collective unity, but then there's also an individual endowment that each saint has as a member of the body. That they together will contribute to the, the love and growth and the unity of the church and thereby continue to grow. Again, this has all been provided through the power of the Spirit of God and the work of Jesus on the cross. So he makes this shift. Look in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to all men. And in, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. These uh, verses paint a picture of Jesus Christ as a victorious conqueror. The Son of God, eternally enthroned in heaven, laying that aside, condescending to earth, and defeating death, hell, and the grave utterly, and then returning to his throne. A victorious conqueror. He's captured every enemy. 
He's confiscated everything, and he dominates every location. All things are under his feet. He's victorious in his defeat of sin and evil. And demons and men alike are his, his bounty. That's his, the spoils that he has received as he defeated his foes. And among his foes were even saints. Those who were against God. The Bible says that all of us have sinned against God and that every single one of us were enemies towards God. It says he led captivity captive. He was victorious over all. So when a king would conquer a new land, he would designate men to rule under his care in that location, in that land. This is what we're reading in verse 11. It says he has given gifts to all who were led captive or rescued, in other words, But specifically, he mentions those who lead or influence the church. He lists lists out the apostles, the shepherds, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers. What are are these men to do? These men that that God has given to the church as, as caretakers and leaders among his people. What are they to do? In verse 12, they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. These men, they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Verse 12, it says, it, 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 it kind of gives us this idea that the aim of the offices or, or ministries that Paul is mentioning there in verse, uh, in verse 11, they're to equip God's people for service. To equip is to prepare, to, to put right. And in, in surgery, in medical terms, that word would be the setting of a broken bone, putting things back in their place, making things right to where the healing and growth could take place. Life could be lived as it should. And in the New Testament, it's also used of mending nets. Nets that, that once had been together and now they were torn apart to, to equip, be to put them back together to where they can be useful again. Another idea that could, is associated with this word is, is being completely furnished. So in the same way that a man would have his bones set, or the nets mended, the same idea is to be completely furnished, to have everything that you need to do your job. Imagine being a new employee showing up for the first day at your work. Some of you, are, you, you think back on that day fondly, and other, others of you wish that I had not brought that up. What do you need on that first day? You need to go through orientation. You need to meet with HR. You need to get your badge and fill out all your paperwork and stacks upon stacks and all this information, and you need to find your Social Security card and all that stuff, and you need to locate all your tools, and you need to find a desk or whatever it is. There's quite a bit of work that has to be done for that new employee on that first day so that you can begin work and be effective. But remember this, on that day, you've already been hired. You've already been hired. On that first day, the interview process is over. You already work for the company. Now, while you may not be an effective employee yet, that's what the beginning is about. It's about being equipped, fully furnished, everything being set in place so that you can grow toward maturity as an employee. In a similar way, that's the job these men that God has given to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, they've been given to you, in a sense, to equip you for the ministry. That brings up another point here. Initially, we were to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to maintain. Maintain means it's already, it already exists. We're already there. Locationally, geographically, we just need to hold that ground. But then here it says attain the unity of faith. Attain the unity of faith. 
What's the difference between maintain and attain? Attain means to arrive at a particular state. So you're in process of going to a particular state, to, to come to be, to, to achieve. This is what it means to attain. So it, it, it is to say that there is still ground to be covered. There's still room to grow, to use the language of this passage. See, there's no need to seek unity because we already have it, but there is a need to attain unity of faith. There's a need to attain unity of faith. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're a Christian, a young Christian, or at some point in your life you were, and you remember coming to faith, hearing the gospel, the good news that Jesus would forgive you if you would repent of your sins and place your faith in the work that he did on the cross. If you'd confess those, those sins and trust him, and yet, even shortly after that, you realized in your life that there was still so much to learn in the Christian faith. Maybe you believed some things that weren't true. So you carried over into your new life some, some false teaching or ideas about God or, or the afterlife. Or even in, 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 in life now. And you needed still to grow in your faith. And maybe, you, maybe some of you are, would be so bold as to stand up and say, I used to believe this about the Christian faith. I used to believe this, or I used to believe that, or I used to do this in order to get this. And as I grew in my faith, I realized that that wasn't necessary and untrue. See, as we come to Christ, we've been given this unity in love, but we still need to pursue the unity in faith. And that is exactly why we have been given these men. And the the gifts that Jesus offers to the church are more than that. But they're not less than that. So the foundations that we have in Christ are already laid. And now it is our task to work together in unity of love to obtain, to attain unity in faith. Look at verse 13. It says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children... Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, we, we need that unity of faith. But what does that even mean, to have unity in faith? It's the unity amongst the believers in the church, but, but even more, it's the unity or resonance of our faith with the truths of God revealed through the prophets and the apostles. Think about that. Unity of faith is achieved, it's realized, it's, a, it's obtained or attained when what we believe resonates with what is true, with what has been revealed to us. And God has given us the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to grow the church together, to equip the church so that at one point, finally, what we believe to be true and what is true are the same thing. This unity of faith, it's both a proper theology and it's a righteous living. And so oftentimes there's a disconnect in that as well. We believe something to be true, but we don't act in a manner consistent with that truth. We know that we should do this, and yet we don't. We know that we shouldn't do this, and yet we do. This, again, is a lack of unity of faith. That's why God gives us these men, these positions, so it's in Christ that the head grows up, or the, the body grows up into the head. It's interesting, one pastor pointed out that he said, maybe this is what actually what this passage is kind of pointing to, but he, he pointed out the fact that lots of times babies will have large heads, right? 
And that can create some problems for the baby, right? Maybe they're top-heavy. They, they lean this way or they lean that way. And they also sometimes they look really cute and, frankly, just a little bit humorous as you see their disproportionate body. Their heads are large and their bodies are small. And, and maybe he's saying that that's what they're pointing to. One day, that big head, you, you grow into it, right? You grow into that head. Some of you, you haven't as well as yet, but you could laugh at that. I'm not thinking of anybody specifically, but we grow up into Christ. We grow into the head. And eventually it fits. Look at verse 13. Here's another point that I want to talk about that's connected with this immaturity. It's this, this, it's, it talks about the singular of the church, of the body as a whole, as one new man in Christ, as we see in chapter 2. One new man. This idea of the unity of faith. Unity and love, even. Individualism, let me say this, is marked by immaturity. They go hand in hand. Individualism and immaturity. If you continue on this idea of maturity and growing up into your head and, and children, they're typically marked with individualism. That's understandable, even in their fallen nature, right? It's, typically, children have a selfish disposition. They have a very myopic, it's, it's small. And we like to see and we hope to see that as, as humans mature, as we grow older in our lives, that we become more cognizant of those around us and the, and the effects that we have on our community, right? We don't leave our trash lying around like we used to. We don't mark up the walls. We don't just take blocks out of people's hands and, and run away. You've seen that whole, if, you know, the rules of a toddler. If you have it and I want it, it's mine. If I had it 10 minutes ago and now you have it, it's mine, right? Like we're, th- th- these are the rules that we operate on when we're younger. And we like to see that as we mature, just socially, we walk away from these things. This is, what it, this is pointed out in chapter uh, 4, verse 13. The one new man. In Christ, theologically, as we view those around us in the community that we live in called the church, that we operate in, that we've been called to, we recognize that we are not individuals. We are one body, one new man, and we we live like that, recognizing that we are just one small part of that body. One small part. I love what it says in verse 15. He says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He says, speaking the truth in love. Just as we close, and there's so much here that we could ring out if we had hours upon hours, and frankly we don't. I really want to just, as we kind of come to a, a close and begin to land the plane, I really want to point out chapter, fi- or chapter 4, verse 15, first, first couple words there, rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. This is what we're called to as Christians. This is what we're called to as Christians. As we seek unity of faith, unity of the faith, Again, on what we, the faith of what we believe, the faith of what we practice, that we have unity, that it, it be resonant with the truths of Scripture. Here's some challenges as we consider practically what it would look like to pursue, to attain the unity of, of the faith. 
First is this, the temptation to speak with truth, but without love. There's a temptation this morning for us to speak truth in the church without love. It's interesting that as we consider what Paul teaches us this morning, that he first talks about unity of love, unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. He talks about that before he talks about unity in the faith. Unity of the faith. You see, when we suffer in unity, we suffer in doctrine. When we suffer in love for one another, we suffer in doctrine. When we're divided as a people, we are sure to be divided in theology, especially as those who are younger in the faith and immature will be the greatest victims. It speaks to theological divisions within the church. Theology is important, and theology does divide. And in many ways, it's good. It should do that. But it is never acceptable that doctrine ever divide without love. You see, the point of doctrine is edification, not annihilation. The point of doctrine is edification, not annihilation. As you consider this point, think about this. Think about the times in your life, Christian, where you've held to a truth that, well, a doctrine that you thought was true, And now you realize and you look back and you say, that wasn't true. Aren't you glad that that people lovingly approached you with truth? That they spoke the truth with love into your life? They used the scriptures of of God not as a a sword to crush somebody, but as a, a surgeon's knife to remove that which would harm you and was dangerous to you. We're to maintain the unity of the Spirit and to pursue the unity of faith. And one leads to the other. And it may seem counterproductive. No, we need this one before we need that one. But through it all, we must speak with love. We must speak with truth, but we must speak with love. Think of the patience of God that he has had towards you, doctrinally speaking. Think of the patience that we, we observe throughout the Gospels as Jesus walks this earth with a bunch of idiots. Bunch of crazy, wacky ideas about the end times and even presently what was happening. They were so confused. And yet in patience and love, he forbears and he teaches them, not crushing them, not destroying them, but in love. Sometimes love speaks harshly. But yet Jesus was patient with them. And he spoke the truth in love. And so that's, that's our desire this morning. That's Paul's desire for us even this morning as we gather the Spirit of God, that we would love one another, that we would speak truth, but that we'd speak it in love. And so there's a temptation that, that we speak, speak the truth without love, but there's also another temptation, that's to speak with love, but without truth. It's actually an ex- oxymoron. That actually can never take place, that you speak with love, but without truth. That's not true, and yet we're tempted to do it. We're tempted to believe it, and it's just as dangerous as a move as the, as the previous one. So as a pastor, I want, to, I want to call you to this, that we not avoid truth. Often it's hard to have truthful conversations. We want to speak with love, but you cannot speak with love if you do not speak with truth. The most loving thing that you can do is to speak truth. The most truthful thing you, do, you can do is to be loving well, what do you mean by that? The most truthful thing that we can do is to be loving. Why? Because we, we love him because he first loved us. And that love that he has given to us and that, it, that is shed abroad in our hearts, we extend out to those within the church as well. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We love because we have been loved. So when we, when we live 
in a loving manner toward those around us, we speak truth in that as well. So if we struggle in division, we are sure to suffer in doctrine. If we struggle in, in division, we are sure to suffer in doctrine. And let me say this, a theological healthy church is a relational healthy church. Now, not always, to the point that one always follows the other. But if we have a church that is not relational healthy, it will be impossible for us to be a theological healthy church. It will be an oxymoron. Because our theology, it leads us to love. It calls us to love. So we're not to sacrifice truth on the altar of love and peace. The opposite is true. We, we want true theological health, and therefore we need to be united in love as we speak truth together in love toward one another. And so there's a temptation to speak without, or with love, but without truth. But then there's, finally, there's another temptation to consider speaking. And, and it's not just speaking in the church that, that brings unity, but it's just our actions. We're, 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 we're using the idea of speaking to one another. But the final is this observation and call for you this morning is that there's the temptation to not speak at all. Maybe you can think of churches even this morning that would be one of these. They would be a church that, that, that leans in on theology, but they, they, they shy away from love. They exist. Paul, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warning us not to be those people. But maybe you could think of another church that, that leans in on love and they shy away from theology or from doctrine and they don't speak truth. God forbid that we be either one of those. We surely don't want to be the last type of church or type of people. Temptation not to speak at all. There's a temptation for us not to speak at all. This is a fear that I have for our church. That we be a a people that we go through this life indifferent for those around us not caring about their eternal destiny and what, what God has and what's in store for them. That we would be a church that in love and in desperation, as we spoke of last week, we would grab the ankles and if, if they would perish, if they would rebel against God, that they would do it in the teeth of our exertions. That we would speak truth clearly and that we would speak it lovingly. And not just outward. We spoke a little bit about the applying these to, to those around us and outside of the church. But remember, the context that Paul is giving to us, while it's true outside of the church as well, the context that he's calling us to is to speak truth and love within the church. So Christian, this morning, I want to call you to this this morning. You should consider your life group, your D group, your relationship with the brothers, your relationship with the sisters, even in your own family you would not back down, that you would not shy away, but in love you would speak truth one to another. A truth that is resonant with the revealed word of God. When we do that, God will be glorified. When we work to maintain the unity and love that he has given to us, and when we work to attain the unity of truth and, and truth and in faith, God will be glorified my prayer this morning. I hope it's yours as well. Just a moment ago, I, I spoke about baptism. Talked about how that, that's very important. Paul lists it out here. You know, he doesn't speak anything about communion. That's a topic uh, at the end of our time here together this morning. Communion. What is communion? And why did Paul leave it out? 
That's, we're not, we're not, none of us are, I don't know, I don't think we're entirely clear as to why Paul did, did mention baptism and not communion, but I, I think I have a hunch. The idea is this. It's not a prerequisite. Communion is not a prerequisite to come to Christ. As we come to Christ, we're dead in our sins and we're made alive. As we enter into the, the, to the physical community of the church, we enter in by baptism. And so Paul lists it out. Remember, it's the front door. And if, if baptism is the front door, then what is communion? Well, it's the dinner table. It's the dinner table. We enter into the community of faith uh, essentially through affirmation of our faith. And, and that's, that's spoken of through and demonstrated through baptism. And then we gather together within that house at the dinner table. That's what we're about to do in just a moment. So if you're a believer in Christ, I want to invite you to participate this morning. You don't have to be a member of Hagerstown Church to take communion and, and to, to do that with us. We don't hold to that. You just have to be a believer. You have to be walking in obedience to the Lord's commands. and Right communion with Him. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've not repented of your sins, we are so glad that you're here. I want to just tell you, there's nothing at this table for you. There's nothing to be gained. There's no grace for those who are away from Christ and don't have a relationship with Him. And yet, at the same time, there is an invitation for you. So Christ says that if you will uh, repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, that you will be saved as well. You'll be invited into that house, into that community. And at that point, this table is a symbol And it is, in a sense, a grace extended to you as it reminds us of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. All the wrath that God God the Father has toward those who are against him, who have rebelled against him, all of that is absorbed through the cross of Christ as his body was broken, as his blood was shed. And the table that we gather around at communion is a symbol for that. We're reminded of the grace that has been extended to us. We celebrate what is behind us. And we look forward to what is in front of us at this meal. We physically take in a symbol into ourselves and by it we are nourished spiritually. So as we think about what makes us united, we're reminded of it at this table. And so in just a moment when the table is open, I'm going to invite you to consider your own heart. The state of your heart. You're walking in obedience to the Lord's command. Is there sin that needs to be confessed? Is there even disunity in your life? Sin against a brother or a sister, even maybe in this room. Before we come to the table, before you do, I want to invite you. I want to challenge you to make those things right. Because if nothing else, it's a lie. It's a lie. There's no resonance there. There's no, there's no matching. There's not, that's not a worthy life with the truths that, we have, that have been spoken about us. Unity we have already been given, and so we walk in it. If you're not a believer this morning, and this is even maybe perhaps your first time here, I would invite you to trust Christ's work on the cross for forgiveness of your sins, to turn from your very own sins, to, even now at your seat to pray and ask for forgiveness and turn from them. Christian, when you take the bread... When you drink the cup, I want you to consider that Jesus' body, that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that he could pay the price for your sins. Remember, he takes all of the wrath that we deserve and he leaves nothing there but affection, love, and grace for us as Christians. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow our heads in reverence to you. 
remembering the time that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. God, we bow in reverence and respect and in awe. We, we, gather, we, we, we bow in adoration for the person and work of Christ, for the words of Christ that we've read even this morning, and today for the cross of Christ. Spirit, we pray to you now, and we ask that, that in this time, as we come to this table, and in a moment as we sing and worship to you, that, that you would be honored, that you'd be glorified. Triune God, we pray that you would comfort our souls this morning and that we would receive what we need from you. God, you promised that you had had given us every spiritual blessing. So as people coming from different directions, from different backgrounds, from different faiths, from different locations geographically, from different ideologies, we are united at the cross and in faith. So we praise you for that. We ask that these things be done in your name, Jesus. Amen.